You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Almost any discussion of foreign policy quickly turns to the relationship between the U.S. and China. As China's importance on the world stage grows, questions arise. Will our countries be friendly or aggressive competitors? Or will there be an accommodation that recognizes our respective interests? Harvard University's Graham Allison has given this considerable thought in his book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap, published late last year, provides a historical underpinning of our relations and an insightful framework around which to consider the future by gluing the analysis around what he describes as Thucydides' Trap. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. So what is this trap? Well, it's a big idea that Thucydides had that I simply coined the term Thucydides' trap, but the insight comes from him. And it is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. Thucydides tells the story of a rising Athens and its impact on Sparta, which had been the dominant power in Greece for 100 years. If you think about the decade that rolls up to 1914 and World War I, the rise of Germany and its impact on Britain which had ruled the world for 100 years. And today, the rise of China and its impact on the U.S. at the end of what was the first American century, Mm -hmm. the past century. So in general, when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, one gets conflict. Now, I've heard you say that the rise of China is the most important geostrategic change in the last 20 years. What is the impact of this? Well, I think we're just beginning to appreciate the impact. The idea that there's another country that has emerged to be a rival of the U.S. in every dimension, and even to surpass us on many dimensions, is for most Americans hard to believe, hard to conceive, hard to recognize, even to accept. And so the impact of that on our consciousness, first, is big. Secondly, the U.S. has been the principal architect an underwriter of the whole international order. A China that is big and strong that says, look, why should the U.S. Navy be the arbiter of events in the South China Sea? That's just right on our border. Why should the U.S. have such strong opinions about who owns which island? These are not your islands. You're not interested in these islands. This is a dispute between me and the Philippines or me Mm -hmm. and uh, Vietnam. But the U.S., has been trying to build and has built an Asian order that's actually provided an environment that enabled all the Asian miracles. Nobody benefiting more than China. So we say, guys, wake up. Look at this environment that we helped create. You should help sustain it. And we don't you want to abandon our place. It. We don't want to walk away from Japan or mm-hmm. South Korea or the Philippines or Australia, and we're not. So Thucydides would say, This sounds like the storyline I was telling you about. The Mm -hmm. rising power thinks I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I deserve more say, I deserve more sway. The current arrangements that you call the order, I call constraints, even containment, of my natural growth. And the ruling power says, wait a minute, you upstart. Why are you trying to upset the circumstances that have been so good for everybody, including for you? You know, one of the things that I found really interesting in your book was in the early part, you talked about, well, 
China's economic growth is so staggering, at least in this country at times we hear, oh, well, you know, it's stealing intellectual property, they don't have the innovation, their universities are not as great as ours. But you point out that, in fact, China really has surpassed the United States in so many areas. Would you elaborate a bit on that? Again, hard to believe. In my course at Harvard, and in the course I give a, in the book I give a short version of the quiz, asks the question, when could China become number one? And I have 43 indicators. In the book, I have a short version of it. And students have to fill in the blank. So largest middle class, mm -hmm. biggest uh, manufacturer of smartphones, fastest supercomputers, largest economy in the world. And students guess 2030, 2040. Sometimes they say not in my lifetime. And then I show them a second chart, which says already that all these things already happen. There's already the biggest middle class in the world, 300 million people. The U.S. total has only 330 million people. There's 300 million Chinese middle class billionaires. The largest number are Chinese supercomputers. There's a contest held every year. Five years ago, China didn't have any entries in the top half. Hmm. Last year, they won four of the top five places. So in every arena, we're seeing not just the China that's got a lot of workers or that can just re-engineer and make cheap stuff. They're pushing frontiers of innovation. If you look at Alibaba, uh, their equivalent of Amazon, or if you look at Tencent, their version of of a combination of a little bit of Google and a little bit of Facebook. Facebook or, or, yeah. mm -hmm. And you look at their smartphones that they're making, and you look at how long it takes for them to do calculation. Actually, in the big cities, they've given up credit cards. They simply have a smartphone that they just flash by you know, an item. I mean, I have my credit card there, and a guy asks me, what, you know, like, what is that? Where have you come from? So it's not when China's going to catch up, it's when we're going to catch up. To, or when we're going to wake up, yeah. So, you know, there's lots of potential flashpoints, whether it be trade, South China Sea, but the one that's getting most attention right now is clearly North Korea. How much does that concern you? I would say that's the most urgent threat on the national security agenda. And I think that there's a real and rising risk that in 2018, North Korea will drag the U.S. into a war, even a war that could ultimately involve China. And I think it makes no sense. I don't think there's anybody in Washington that has any idea that any other idea than that war with China would be catastrophic. And China That's, would feel the same way? And China identical. So it's not something that people want. But Thucydides' insight was that in this dynamic in which you're the rising power and I'm the ruling power, we both become vulnerable to third-party actions or provocations, like the assassination of the Archduke in 1914 that produced World War I. And currently, if you were central casting and you were looking for a provocateur, Kim Jong-un looks like a great <laughs> candidate. And his demand or desire, his drive to acquire ICBMs that will allow him to attack San Francisco and Los Angeles is posing a real threat to the U.S., one that President Trump says he's simply not going to tolerate. So we're going to see this play out. Are we being played to spend so much on our military to maintain superiority over China when the real threat won't be on the battlefield, neither in the United States or in China, but more through soft power or economic clout. 
Well, that's a good question. So I think actually President Trump's new national security strategy that was published in December calls China a strategic rival on all dimensions. And I would say as a first approximation, that's a good picture, as opposed to what the Obama equivalent would have said, they're our partner. Now, in fact, it's complicated because in some domains, they're our strategic partner. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they're our strategic rival. But I think if I just had one picture, I would say rival. And that rivalry goes from economics to politics, how to govern yourself, to military, to technology. So you have 20 dimensions of this competition. And I think too often Americans imagine that if we're just big and strong militarily, that That'll takes care of the situation. Right. But as I point out in the book, Lee Kuan Yew says, as we see it here in Asia now, and he's very favorable to the U.S., but as we see it in Asia, the economic balance of power is having a bigger impact on us than the military balance. So during the Cold War, the United States and Russia were really locked in an ideological battle. Right. Does China want to win an ideological battle, or is it really still an economic playing ground? No, the answer is to be determined. Traditionally, China has said, Chinese governments have said, we don't have a model of governance. We simply are a poor developing country trying to improve the lives of our population. Mm -hmm. For the first time ever at the Party Congress in October, Xi Jinping said, we have a model that works. And actually, it includes many lessons of sort of governance with Chinese characteristics that other peoples can learn from if they want to become wealthy. So their system of government is not democracy as we understand it. And for Western democracy, which we've been hoping they would evolve towards, Xi Jinping and the current government says, forget about it. We're going to have a leader who's in charge of everything. We're going to have a party that leads everything. We're going to have citizens who benefit from the great leadership of their government, mm -hmm. but who otherwise can like it or lump it. We have time for just one more question, and it's hard to believe, but it's been almost a year since we withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. How much did that hurt, in your view, U.S. interest? I would say that was a huge loss. My colleague Larry Summers has characterized it. He said, Probably the biggest gift that the U.S. gave to China was the 15 years, not just Trump's action, but 15 years of walking all the Asians down the path to TPP, getting them to sign on, and then withdrawing. So this is very puzzling to Chinese because they see what a huge loss. Here, your key partners were about to become part of a club that have included 40% of the world's GDP that had rules that we would have to adjust to. And then, at the edge of success, you walk away from this. So they're quite puzzled by this. And I think the other Asian countries, especially Japan, but you can see this in South Korea, they know that on the issue that we said was the most important issue in the region, and that we worked on over you know, many, many years, having got to the edge of success, we walked away. So they think that tells something about our political system or our our reliability or our, you know, how much confidence they can have. I would say it's huge. 
Well, I want to thank you again for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. Congratulations on your book. I saw that at year end it was listed by both uh, New York Times and Washington Post as one of the most important books to read in 2017. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of Destined for War. As we close this program, I'd also like to thank Greenberg Trowig for its continuing support and sponsorship of Global IQ Minute. I hope you enjoyed our program and invite you to share it across your social media. I should also add Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.